Hello, and welcome to and welcome the of Cleveland. Uh, my name is Daniel Gray, and I'm the executive artist for 12 Literary Arts and a proud member. And a proud member. It's July 14th, and July. we're with a virtual city club forum. I'm here with Cortez here. Author of debut author of full length collection, We Made It to Alive. Published by 12 Arts Press. Cortez is also a teacher at Michael R. White Elementary School, part of the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. The poetry collection draws on Cortez's experiences in the classroom and centers on the humanity of students of color while revealing how they establish self worth and optimism in spite of a backdrop of structural barriers. A native of Springfield, Ohio. Mr. Harris graduated from The Ohio State University, Newark with a degree in social work. And not long after graduating, Cortez completed, competed in the second annual grand tournament competition hosted by Writing Nights Press. His prize was a full length book deal and he released his first collection of poems, Nothing But Skin in 2014. In addition, Cortez is the first recipient of the Barbara Smith Writer in Residence program from 12 Literary Arts, and he was selected as a Baldwin House Fellow also with 12 Literary Arts. After that, he was featured uh, in the Cleveland Drafts Festival in 2019. Before we get into the conversation with Cortez, I would love to thank the City Club's generous members, sponsors, and donors who support these virtual forums. For a full list, visit cityclub.org. Thank you. You can join them in supporting their work by making a contribution or becoming a member also at cityclub.org. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. And to do that, you can simply text your questions to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your questions at the City Club, at the City Club, and we'll work those in. So let's begin. Uh, before we get to Cortez, I'd like to first introduce uh, Talena Johnson, who is a support teaching artist at 12 Literary Arts at the ripe age of 19. And Talena will begin with a poetry reading um, of her own original work. I'll pass the mic to Talena. Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, this poem is called Flame Soul. Flame can dance on my body, swallow my soul to sand, tree shackles to bird's eyes, got in my spread off cliffs. Tie-dye in veins, making all arcs in my mama blood, rainbows in the water. That pot of gold got lingering sharks. There's rainbows in the water screaming, can you hear me? It's dangerous in the water. 
eyes dipped in cayenne for all the heated moments we've been solving with our eyes closed. Mama say she felt the kick pick a lock inside her DNA. She birthed an alien. End up having high blood pressure after the water broke. Flame dancing on this soul. Siren for ears when it's cold. Arrows shooting at my halos. I said no. When your soul turned to sand, you call your feet to make you hear. Call your ears to make you run. It's rainbow in the water. Pots of gold, lingering sharks. There's rainbows in the water. And that is the end of <laughs> Selena, that is. Selena, that is. That's an amazing, that's an amazing one. And you know, you close, you know, you close that by saying there's fine dangers water. And that lad What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? When I think of a rainbow, I think of like just from my perspective down here on planet earth and looking up in the sky and seeing a rainbow in the actual sky and I'm like hmm it must see over me so when I look at a rainbow I look at it as an arc or seeing over a circumstance or a situation in the in the world that you're in so a rainbow to me is just an overarching circumstance where you, you have the mentality to know all possibilities when the per point of view and perspective you're in. So that's, that's, that's what rainbows in the water. Mm. Uh, that's a mixed metaphor. It's a mixed metaphor. You can see it all. You can see all. We are really sort of mired in this in this water, this struggle, and yet, um, even though we're in the struggle, you can see from a sense of perspective where liberation lies as well. It's part of what I'm think I'm hearing you said, Selena. I want to thank you again so very much for uh, for opening us up with those words um, from the perspective of. Um, one of our city's bright young people. I'd now like to go ahead and turn to Cortez Harris, who um, has written quite extensively um, about young people. And uh, I am particularly proud and grateful to be in conversation with you, dear brother, because I have, uh, I have watched you grow and develop over the course of a year. This book project has taken um, about that long. So it's just been a pleasure to participate in helping to make this book go. Good morning, brother. Good morning, brother. Good morning. <laughs> I'm honored to be in the space right now. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, you know, brother, I just want to talk like we always do, because you and I have been talking about this book uh, for a little longer than a year, honestly. And now here it is, it's out, it's the first book on 12 Arts Press. Um, 
how does it feel, brother? How does it feel right now to have this book out and alive in the world? Um, Daniel, is it possible if you can kind of rehash that question for the end? My, com my computer froze, so there was like an abrupt pause. Sure, of course I can. I understand. Um, I was just asking, how does it how does it feel after after all this time to have this book out and alive in the world? Um, it feels like um, it, it feels unreal, but it also feels like this body of work um, happened at a critical time where we're starting to see um structural barriers come to light in turn i feel like my book has been addressing these um issues that we are now seeing um sort of you know displayed on media now i've been grappling with these same concerns before um floyd before all of these contemporary um i like to think um moments that's happening that's manifesting now so Right now, I feel like my book provides a perspective on the state um, of education, the plight in education, and what I have, again, have always been sort of grappling with um, as an educator and as a writer. Cortez, we are, uh, we're, I promise you we're gonna get to the poems. Um, but I really would like to ask you um, for, for the sake of our audience, what is it like for you to be in, an educator in this moment where there's so much uncertainty uh, and where it's really not clear um, how this pandemic is, is really gonna impact you or your students? What is it like to be a, a teacher um, right now in this very moment for you? Um. It's, and I want to just kind of revert, just kind of go back a little bit. Um, before I am an educator, I am a parent. And I have a son who attends Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Okay. And then I'm an educator after that. So I am afraid. I am afraid because I know, I've done enough research to know that this virus is disproportionately affecting marginalized groups of kids. It's affecting um, black folks, Latinx folks. And um, I do know that Cleveland um, serves um, a number of Latinx um, African-American um, students. So I feel like this is really also happening to my son, where the fact that I am really thinking about wow, like my son's health is in jeopardy. He has asthma. He has the underlying um, medical issue. And now I have some sort of process that my son will be entering this space and he could be affected. And it's, it's, it's scary. And it's scary to think about all the other children who um, essentially will be coerced into school. And um, that right there, it's, it's as a writer, I'm thinking about it a lot. I'm trying to write about it a lot, but I don't think I can write away um, these issues. Only can one thing I can do is just um, bring voice to them.
Cortez, I, I'd like to uh, pivot just for a moment. And I would love to invite you to read one of the poems uh, from We Made It to School Alive. Okay. Um, would you be able to share um, one of the poems from the collection and just sort of uh, describe it for us before you? Yeah, so the first poem um, I am honored to share with you guys is a poem entitled Ocean. And this book, in my opinion, is a story about a father trying to reconcile with not being able to really give him his son the world. So he's depending on the very school system that he felt feels like failed him. And I feel like this is a scenario a lot of um, my students' parents have expressed to me. You know, a lot of my students went to CMSD or they went to a public school system and they're, they feel like, okay, I really want to give my child the world, but I'm not in a position economically to do that. I don't have the resources to do that. So I'm going to invest in a school or I'm going to believe in a school that is divested, that um, has um, very little um, resources to ensure that my son is able to um, live and, and be full and uh, full of possibilities. So again, this um, poem is entitled Ocean. When I think of the ocean, I think of this um, enormous um, um, place. I think of it as spreading all over the world. I mean, the ocean essentially it covers the world. There's more ocean than there is land. So that's why I felt like this poem sort of epitomizes this, uh, this idea of um, seeing the world, experiencing the world. My son runs his hands across a puddle outside our apartment. Pretend it's an ocean he can swim in. I sent him to the school I dropped out of, hoping this time the teacher will hand him a telescope so he can see the world for himself. My son's death looks how I left it. His teacher still haven't told him the world is a sea of wells. He watches YouTube in class as proof that somewhere water is wider than his classroom at recess. I used to swing high as moss, push high enough. I almost saw beyond the rooftops. I can still feel the hands. I hope he doesn't grow up like me, holding down mop buckets to keep the water running. I pray he can swim as far as his hands chooses to reach, where there is no cliff, no shore, no horizon. I always thought Glenville was the whole damn universe and the sun and moon only had my son to look after. I haven't left, can't afford a U-Haul to carry our shit across the street. My son, he's begging me to take him to see the world. I am afraid there are only swamps for him to dip his head in. Went to a parent teacher's conference, a poster hung from some nappy ass cobweb it read, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. I told my son, that poster won't move us out the hood, but that isn't to say his mind isn't a grenade. If he uses it, he could explode into a sea of reefs. Thank you. Hmm. I'm so glad you read that poem. It's, uh one of the opening poems in the collection. And uh, 
also is told from the perspective of, of a parent. There are many storytellers in this collection. Um, and so Cortez, you have just read the piece from the perspective of a parent. I'm wondering if there is a poem uh, from the perspective of a teacher that you might be able to share with us as well. Yeah, um, I do have one from the perspective of a teacher. And um, this particular poem is, I would like to think, and it's a very um, brief poem, but I do want to um, make a comment. This poem is brief, but it also, for me, it is a poem that really speaks to this narrative of not smiling on the first day of school. And this poem really sort of uh, charged me to just call out what was told to me. My first, you know, my first year teaching in the um, Cleveland district. And um, I was informed not to smile on the first day of school because that could ultimately um, reveal that I may be passive, that I could be potentially ran over. And it was this sense of fear as if, if I don't smile, then I can sort of overcome uh, and, and ultimately be in control. And we'll have a more, um, I guess you can like, I like to think a, uh, an experience in education where kids are not um, allegedly run over me, but I am running over them. And I, know, I don't think, and then for me, that didn't feel right. And I spoke to my principal about it and she gave me some feedback. So this poem was entitled on whether I should smile on the first day of school. Teacher tells me, never allow a smile to crawl from any parts of your face or else those kids will rip your flesh open. My principal tells me, black students, have seen enough claws foaming out the mouth. The least you can do is smile. My second graders never been good at learning if I am not smiling. When we teachers of color are told to not smile, what we really are being told is to be careful when opening our mouths because black children will sense fear. I'm struck immediately, Cortez, by the opening line of that poem, um, because what it's immediately setting us up to understand is that one is not able to express the, the full range of emotions um, on that first day or even that first week. And so when one is um, unable to express the full range of human emotion, by definition, um, that is not allowing for someone to be human. And mm -hmm. so what you are capturing in that moment is the dehumanization of everybody in the classroom space. Um, and there are many poems in this collection that, that do that, that give you a, a picture of some of the intended and unintentional elements of dehumanization that happen in the classroom. I'm wondering, speaking of dehumanization and of this moment, if there are poems that capture that dehumanization that happens outside of the classroom. 
Absolutely. Um, because the title of the book is We Made It to School Alive. Mm. Which means that these poems are not just about what happens in the schooled context, but also in the out of school context. Mm. Can you share one of those pieces? Yes, I would love to. Um, and this poem is, I would like to think, and I'm gonna bring it home. Um, this poem that I'm going to read is about Tamir Rice, and, we, and, and if you're native of Cleveland, if you know anything about Cleveland, actually beyond that, um, you, you've heard of Tamir Rice. And um, this poem speaks to um, that reality and that dehumanization of who he was. And it's also merged into that. There is some elements of school, but it starts outside of a school setting. I learned how to draw by sketching Tamir's face in the dirt with the stitches my mom beat into my spirit to prevent me from becoming those kids who stood outside their bodies, trying to quarrel with the officer that killed them as if they could hear the dead my skin now hangs on a host of tree branches in my backyard. All around me are mirrors with lesions. When I look through them, I can see myself being gunned down by men dressed in robes. I told a cop once that when Tamir was killed, he was reincarnated into a lightning bolt that contained every black vault of children who was killed by an officer. And when it stormed, it was them taking back the sky. I await the second coming when every police officer removes their ski mask so we can see all the faces responsible for blood running into classrooms, filling in for the children who would never make it back to class alive. The newscast said, there's a flood warning, which is to say it's a blood warning before I could read. I learned to fear a cop's trigger finger. Tamir's ghost and all of his dead allies climb up a light post shouting, fuck the world, now can you hear me? Part two. Former colleague said, Tamir used to run the streets after school. He was a problem student, as if he needed to be killed, as if bullets were his salvation, as if he needed to be saved when a cop's gun becomes a savior complex, part three. During my first year teaching, we hung photos of Tamir on the bulletin board, hung the letters we wrote to his mother. I was told to take them down because it wasn't age appropriate, as if children are too young to know when they have been shot. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, that is. You know, Cortez, it's also um, important for people to realize that in the face of all that you've described, the, the dehumanization, um, there is also joy. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. I can always forget that part. <laughs> I mean, um, we can't do this work um, as educators or as poets without what, what Dr. Cornel West calls uh, 
a profound sense of, of hope. And he expresses the importance of hope within the context of the African-American literary and church and organizing traditions. Um, and so it's necessary for us to grab hold and to seize and keep near uh, Black joy. Mm. Can you read one of those poems? Absolutely. I want to read a few of, few of those poems, by the way. Yeah. Um, and I want to sure <laughs> I um, sort of build onto what Daniel is saying. I think that no matter how much the world tries to kill us, our beauty always survives. And we cannot evade from that. We cannot run from that. That is who we are. We are beautiful black folks. So in a sense, I felt like, okay, yes, my book is going to address the very um, insidious uh, state of being black, but also the bigger part of that is that there is a real range of beauty and I make sure I wanted to make sure that my room made room for that. And the very first person, very first poem I would like to um, lead in that order is a book entitled Alive. Um, as an educator, I always made room um, throughout the day, like 15 minutes throughout the day, you know, maybe 15, to 15 minutes before lunch, 15 minutes before we went home where kids can simply just be. And I will allow them essentially to wander aimlessly throughout my classroom, connect, um, have fun, just kind of exist in my space. And there were a few people and I, and I understand they'll come in and they'll kind of give me that little glare, like what is going on in here? But um, it was always hard to convey the fullness of life that was happening. So sometimes I didn't say anything. I just allowed them to just sort of kind of just pass their judgment. But as they passed their judgment, we were living, we were alive, we were black, we were beautiful. So this poem, um, it speaks to that. And it's a very short, short poem, but it's a very beautiful poem. Alive. Shoes sprawled across the floor. Stefan blows bubbles across the classroom. They disperse into glitter. Children dive into beanbags as if they are plastic pools. Marshawn stands on his desk, tries to grab a cloud or two. Michelle, Cadence, play hide and seek under their desks. My God, my black students are alive. Yeah. And this next poem is entitled Womb. I do believe there is this sort of uh, assumption that when you enter um, public spaces that um, constitute um, a lot of African-American um, children, there is this sort of um, ubiquitous narrative that um, there is a, you can expect um, poor literary skills. Um, you can expect narrative of most of our kids are not reading above or on grade level. They are um, behind grade level. They need um, intervention. And there's these whole gimmicks about, you know, what it means to be in black spaces and, and, and all that is often connected to illiteracy. But um, the stories that are not told are um, parents who, who themselves um, have a affinity for language, affinity for words, affinity for books. And that was the case for one of my students. Her mom ran a book club. And I go to Michael Allwright, which is a high poverty district. 
um, well, school and the, the community itself, it is um, high poverty. But um, this mom, she ran her own book club and her daughter um, was a phenomenal reader. And she wasn't the only one in my classroom who could read. Um, virtually all my students could read. And I wanna be very clear about that. Um, if you go to donors choosing to ask for money, it would say these school these kids come from 99% of these kids come from low income homes. But um, I don't think it's really showcased that Yes, they may come from these um, economically deprived communities, but they can also read too. And this poem speaks to that. It's entitled, Boom. Mr. Harris, we don't have a lot of money. We have a one bedroom apartment with books as amenities. Before my daughter was born, I bookmarked her. Wanted her to know she would likely become a story I was preparing her to read. My womb is an archive. When she was an embryo, a leaf I read fell in love with her. The lips she formed reads to me now. She found my baby tooth inside the mouth of my favorite book. Some magical habits can become a new universe. Thank you. It's a beautiful poem, Cortez. Uh, I think part of what you've managed to do here um, is also capture, um, there's the, the curriculum, but then there's also the hidden curriculum. Mm. And part of what you expressed in the first poem is the hidden curriculum of creating a classroom space that allows you to make room for your own. It's 11 o'clock. Creativity and to make room uh, for you uh, to be. And as a part of the hidden curriculum, that kind of instruction can sometimes go even farther than the regular instruction. It can be more meaningful than that. Giving your youth the, the ability to be able to spread out um, is very important in the classroom context. Um, it is 11 o'clock, and I want to go ahead and take a quick moment uh, to remind those of you who are in our virtual audience, and welcome again, uh, to go ahead and if you have any questions, text them to us. Um, phone number again is 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330 541-5794. You are just joining us. Uh, my name is Daniel Gray Contar, and we are with poet Cortez Harris, who has just released on 12 Arts Press a powerful collection of poems titled We Made It to School Alive. Also very proud to mention very quickly that um, Cortez, you have recently because of this book, um, you have recently signed with an agent. Yeah, I have, yeah. In New York City, and uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? First of all, congratulations um, on this wonderful news that another of Cleveland's very own um, is well on the way um, to being a fixture in um, our literary tradition. Can you talk a little bit more about what is happening? Yeah, um, you know, I am in a state of disbelief, and I keep saying that. Um, I know I've been writing for decades, but um, to just have 
two um, renowned accredited agents out of New York reach out to me and um, port me and want me to just aim high. And it, it, it's very, um, it's, it's humbling, but it's also unreal. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I um, received um, two um, um, agents who expressed an interest in courting me, and I went with an agent out of New York. Um, they were both from New York, but this particular um, agent, I, I really get a good sense that they really want to see um, black literature not in the margins, but um, in the center. And this particular um, agent, you know, her work speaks to that, and she is really prioritizing um, content that reflects the black experience in a beautiful life. And she's also just real and she is really um, has a powerful editorial team, editing team. Um, you know, I've never uh, wrote a novel before, although I, uh, I write my poetry is my face, but that is something I'm moving to. And based on We Made a School Alive, she believes that I have a lot of potential. And um, I've been working on something that she wants to um, turn into um, a YA novel, which I'm really happy about, and um, a few other projects that I'm just gonna just um, not speak to yet, but um, we are definitely working on um, a forthcoming um, YA novel. And I'm just honored that I have some really legendary writers. I have Sharon Draper, who is known for Tears of the Tiger, Copper Sun, I mean, you name it, Blended. And she has been mentoring me. You know, she actually reached out to me. Um, she said she read my book. She she said that um, in her own words that I'm a apparently I'm a gifted writer and I need to continue to hone my gift. And she um, said, it's, you know, I'm not saying this because you know I like you. I don't know you, but I want to support you. And she got in contact with their agent and they called me and they read, and she read my stuff and she. I thought about it and she offered me an opportunity to a few days, think about it, talk to some folks. Daniel definitely curated a space for me so I could talk to some of his colleagues and we brainstormed and I made the best, I feel like I made the best decision. Yes, I, yeah. I believe that you, you are right about that. Congratulations again, Cortez. Um, and it is now not just Cortez the poet, but soon to be Cortez novelist in the very near future. Cortez, we have a couple of questions um, for you. We're going to start with our first question. Uh, this person asks, uh, I see your book being instructive for educators. How can we use your work to be better in the classroom? Oh, wow. Question. Um, I think my book is critical for the betterment of teachers and students because for one, um, there's not enough um, black literature in classroom spaces. I think it's already hard enough for kids to identify themselves in the classroom because predominantly most teachers um, are Caucasian and the content is a reflection of that. And you have a lot of schools that have influx of black students, black and brown, and if they don't see themselves in the teacher and they don't see themselves in the curriculum, then there is a serious deprivation to who they are as human beings, a deprivation to their future. So I think just by them seeing black literature um, from a, written from a um, black author, illustrated from a black illustrator, but also the content, it provides context that unpacks 
um, the structural barriers in education. So they're getting an understanding of how the intersection of um, social injustice and educational injustice, because I'm calling it out. Particularly, I have a poem um, that says what school, what lawmakers really think when they say high poverty district, which is explaining sort of the lack of value of black communities. And just also shifting the paradigm of how teachers see them students. Um, I have quite a few poems that speaks to just full of seeing students as human beings. And also it impacts what students think. A lot of my text is extracted from conversations I had with students. I mean, me being a black man, fortunately, um, a lot of kids gravitated to my classroom, not only my students, but their siblings. And I will oftentimes be very receptive to what they had to say. And I will oftentimes, once they walk out of my classroom, I'll write some notes and then I you know, convert it to a poem. So in this poem, it's not just my writing, it's literally kids' voices. And if you want to hear it directly from kids, you need to listen directly to my book. Yeah. And that was a good question. That's a, it was a wonderful question. And, you know, Cortez, because also the book draws directly from experience you've had, experiences you've had with other teachers, uh, with parents, and with youth. This is a primary, this is primary, uh, a primary text. Uh, and so part of what that means is that teachers can use this book to inspire conversation with their students about their own experiences. So young people feel as though they are seen and heard and that their experiences in their own lived uh, context are relevant in the classroom space. So just introducing this book uh, to black and brown youth in Cleveland um, is absolutely essential to create a, a more human classroom. Mm. Uh, that was a wonderful question. Um, there are a couple more questions, Cortez. They're beginning to come in. This next question, um, I'd love to hear Cortez talk about why he teaches and also what he thinks of the current conversation about reopening schools and remote education. So, yeah, it's a two-part question. First, uh, why do you teach? And second, what do you think about um, reopening schools and remote education? I knew that was coming. Um, yeah, well, so. Yeah, I knew that was coming. I and I'm glad I'm glad to answer both questions because this is something I've been um, sort of pondering quite a bit, and I've wrote extensively on Medium about. Um, one, the first question: Why I teach? I'm going to take you back just very briefly. I teach because I was a kid who was uh, labeled uh, with a individualized education program, so an IEP. So from second grade, which is ironic because I teach second grade now, all the way. To, through high school, um, the duration of that time, I was told that I have poor writing comprehension, poor reading expression. So if I can get to a point where I'm writing books and um, I, now I have a contract where there's two books on the line and there will be more. And um, as a black person who comes from a low income um, family, and that is not to say that my rise um, is the epitome and that anybody can rise. That, that is not to say that, but it is to say that there's hope. Um, and I think that what better job assignment 
is intervening on a grassroots level. And I don't have a traditional education background. I was a, I went to Ohio State. I am a graduate social rank degree. Then I went to TFA, which um, they shape and mold me. And TFA is the reason I am in um, education. And they are a big support to me. So if I can transpire into an educator with the support of a community, and I'm in, and I can enter this space. I really think that um, I have a leverage, and I understand my blackness. I understand that how marginalized I am, and I understand that being a black male educator, there's only two percent of us in education, and I knew just that leverage could make a tremendous impact that I may never live to see. Two, um, what I think about the reopening of schools. This is what I think. We've been open up unsafe schools before COVID. I'll make that very clear. Um, I am not surprised that although African-Americans, Latinx are disproportionately contracting and dying for COVID-19, schools are considering opening their doors. I'm very, I'm, 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 I'm not surprised. I'm, a, I'm appalled, but I'm not surprised. Um, I wrote a, a column and through Medium and I, and I spoke about this. You know, um, and I and I like to think that this opening sort of exacerbates the institutionalized um, disregard of black students' humanity. And I'm very clear about that. I do think, however, that this is going to affect marginalized kids the most. I think kids need to be in a school classroom. I think they need to be in a cool setting when it is deemed safe. And it's not deemed safe. Cleveland, Ohio, right now, we're at level three. We're approaching emergence level four. However, I do say this because we know that there is an, I already spoke about Summer Slide. I had an opportunity where I spoke about Summer Slide, how it disproportionately affects students from, of color and comes from low income communities. When schools do open, there should not be any excuses to invest in low income schools, dilapidated schools. I also know that there's going to be an enormous cost to open up schools. We've already struggled with providing basic hand soap in schools. Now we need sanitizers. And I also know that the Federal Teachers Organization is asking for, I believe, approximately $117 billion to open up schools safely with all the cuts that happened before that. Now there, if the HEROES Act passed, which Lord God, I hope it does pass, it will offset it by $57 billion. But at the end, any investment that comes after COVID-19 is not enough to offset all the legacies of instructional barriers in education. So I think we need to take a serious look at, okay, if we send kids in school at some point, there is no, there should be no narrative for why we should not invest in marginalized schools because they've already suffered before COVID. We've already opened up unsafe school capacities before COVID. Now you're going to risk our lives. So where's, so why, why? So th that is my thoughts. And I'm very, I'm very firm about those thoughts, and I do not think it's a good idea to open schools. Um, but um, I do think that ultimately, if schools open, we're going to see, and it's going to take one student or one teacher to, um, unfortunately, be traumatically affected by this. And then I think we, we will even awaken up even more about the realities of protecting and the importance and imperative and being imperative about protecting the lives of all students, but certainly students of color who, again, are, will be more affected by this.
so interesting that you and and true uh, that you say that schools have not been safe for a long time, even before this moment. And what we're starting to also see is is not only the the uh, structural and institutional disregard for black and brown youth, but for those who teach them. I'm getting word from some teachers that they have begun uh, updating their wills. You think about that. Uh, teachers are updating their wills, recognizing the danger from the top down that they are going to be placed in. Uh, yes. this, this is a very, very um, heavy moment and weighty moment. And your book um, is allowing us the opportunity to peer into uh, the legacy um, of dehumanization uh, in the school context and the out of school context as it infiltrates in schools. Just the general disregard for uh, black and brown life, period that manifests itself in the school. And now as a teacher, um, you have become um, a part and you are also impacted by this disregard. Uh, it's a heavy moment, Cortez, and we thank you so much for, uh, for bringing to light uh, what is really happening on the ground. I wanna go ahead and turn to the, uh, the next question here. Uh, and this is a question about your writing. I'm so grateful that someone asked this. Cortez, brilliant work. How do you know when a poem is finished? Okay. Um, so again, there may be some technical difficulties because there's it be there seem to be these abrupt pauses. So could you just kind of again last question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the question is. Uh, they're congratulating you on brilliant work, firstly. And then second, how do you know when a poem is finished? Um, so I don't, so the process of writing, so the inception of writing is a, I like to think, or the beginning of writing a poem is, happens in, in solitude. The process of writing happens with community. Um, I don't, I'm never sure if a poem is not finished until I have a community um, that is um, undergirding the book, who's, who's really providing, entering feedback. And at that point, for me, it, it, once I have some people that I value as writers confirm that it's done, it's done. Um, also, there's another part where a poem is never finished. So when I think in terms of finish, I think in terms of publication. So if I have I have offered a book deal, there's a deadline. Something needs to get done. So for that sake, for the for the uh, sake of and meeting a deadline and, and to adhering to my publication um, um, guidelines, then yes, the poem is finished in that terms. But I I could literally go back and I could and I can go to the book now, and I can ah, I should add this and I do it all the time. I should I could I could add this. Sometimes I'm reading a book and I and I want to go back and edit. We made the school live and add some stuff to it. Um, so I'm all the, the process of writing never feels finished to me. Uh, in terms of publication, there there has to be a form of 
complete, but in terms of just me being a writer and a poet, nothing ever seems done. And I can go back and I can revise every single poem I've written. So hope that answered the question. I really appreciated your answers. Your answers. Um, the first one um, means so much because I think that a lot of people oftentimes look at a book, and as we should, uh, we champion the name uh, that appears on the book. Uh, but what we do not often see is the community that helped raise the book. Mm. Um, and so your your understanding and your assertion um, that a community is absolutely necessary in helping to bring something as much to completion as it can is a wonderful answer because it, it supports this notion that poems, collections of poems, all books are made in community. And thank you for that, for for bringing that awareness to this audience. Yeah, I mean, that not, this writing experience was not a maroon experience and every poem can be reworked with a community. I don't think I can rework every poem by myself, but every poem can be reworked with the community because everybody has their own lens and perspectives and feedback. So that's right. And, and you create that space for me. And you actually helped me to come to understand that by creating um, roundtables and roundtable dinners where you've invited a multitude of writers, playwriters in the community in the Cleveland area who really invested in my work and provided me with new perspectives and new momentum to write. So thank you, Daniel. Oh, brother. And thank you to those who did that, including. Um, Michael Oatman and Michelle Smith Quarles and R.A. Washington, um, Adebe Durango Adem, and so many others who have also uh, lent support in the creation of this book. Um, here's another question for, for you, Cortez. Um, do you have any advice for parents or teachers in predominantly white school systems for introducing the black literatures to help open children's eyes to new perspectives. I'm gonna read that question again for you. Do you have any advice for parents or teachers in predominantly white school systems for introducing the black literatures to help open children's eyes to new perspectives? I think that, and that's a good question. Um, I was talking to Sharon Draper about this a few days ago, the legend herself, and we had this extensive conversation about um, this topic. Um, at one point when she was younger, um, black literature was very scarce, very marginal. In fact, she said she had an affinity for reading, but it, but it did occur to her at one point that there was no black literature at the time when she was um, writing and reading. And now I think we are at a time where like black literature is definitely an emerging force. And I think that one, I think it, it could just be a display of just all the black liter literary artists out there. I mean, just, just, I know in my room, particularly, I, when you come to my, if you come to my, if you are welcome to my, well, once it's safe to school open at one, like my classroom for the past four years, I have, Drake my classroom with black literature. I have put books all over. I don't like, I don't, if you're not African-American, that book will not be in the center of my classroom. There's enough books for that. And I, and I'm clear about that. You come to my classroom, you will not see any Caucasian writers, I'm serious, on display. 
But I think just creating what it would look like in a predominantly white school if a child walked into their liter literary classroom and they saw nothing but African-American writers, books on display everywhere, pictures of black authors on display. Again, this is not to disregard the other writers who happen to not be African-American, but it is to say that we have spent centuries promoting, lifting white writers. We have not lift James Baldwin enough in classroom spaces. So I think that there has to be an urgency to sort of display black art. It's not enough to talk about black art, display it, let them see it, hand it to them, and enforce it into the curriculum. And I think you will create a space that honors blackness because to be clear, schools have honored white writers since the very inception of school. That, and that's a fact. So I think there should be a level of urgency to just put black art on display. And I can assure you, just as much as some black authors like Sharon Draper, who was reading certain books by white writers and didn't really occur to her that they were white, it's just, it was language. I think that white kids can have that same experience. And it's gonna be like, oh wow, they're black. Yeah, black people can write like white people too. If not better, so I'm. That's just my opinion. Um, and also, I would say always go on and listen to James Baldwin, who always was in white audience speaking as a novelist. And he, at one point, I think he was at um, Berkeley College. And, it, and I think I was watching video with my partner, and it occurred to me that he was the only black other than a student who was like, like literally in awe, was standing under him, was watching him. But he was in a, in a, in a. Uh, lobby or not auditorium full of white folks and they were just I think they were a bit marveled that this black writer is who he is and I think wow and he, James Bond was not the only one there's so many more greater writers on the ground we have another question uh, for you and this question makes me smile uh, Extraordinary Poetry Collection. Can you talk about how you arranged and ordered the poems? I'm gonna ask that again, because it, it looks like maybe it froze. Yeah, do that again. Yeah, sure. Um, the person says, Extraordinary Poetry Collection. Can you talk about how you arranged and ordered the poems in the collection. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he reacted. So let me be clear, this arrangement in order did not happen in isolation. In fact, Daniel, we sat in his office, um, the office I, I happened to be in, and um, we literally sat and we put, like there was a display or my poems were sprawled across his floor and we, Poem by poem, we reorder, we arrange, we alternated, we discuss, we debated, we disagree, we agree. It was a process of trying to ensure that there was a sort of a storyline that, that followed a kid. What happens when a kid before a kid goes to school, and what occurs to a kid when he's in school, and then what occurs to a kid when he leaves school. So it was just this a continuation of just trying to honor every moment in a child's life, 
not in, and not just in school. Because sometimes we, when I, I like to think sometimes educators forget that kids have a whole nother life outside of school. And what's important in school is just as important what's outside of school. They're both entertained, they're both intertwined. And we, I think we, we were intentional about rebuilding that in this collection. And I think Daniel could agree that was the process. Cortez, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I just want to say that it was it was such a, a wonderful process. Uh, it was a process that was built uh, around respect and trust um, that a, that an, an editor and a writer, you know, have to have together. And I, I really, uh, I enjoyed it very much. I, I, I think that for both, yeah, I, I did feel like I froze again for you. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, um, I want to also invite you to, because we're almost at that time of closing. Um, but I also would love for you to, to close out with two poems. Um, and they may be the same poem, but I would personally love to hear you read the poem that is the book cover. Um, and then also what in this moment is your favorite poem? Um, so I'm going to read my personal favorite poem and I'm going to um, end with the poem that sort of represents the entirety of the book. Um, and there's a story, and I hope I have time to share that brief story about how that hat came to be. That wasn't my vision. That was really Daniel's and the illustrator's vision. Um, so this poem is actually inspired by, well, I have, so as, as someone who thinks a lot and writes a lot and ponders a lot and reflects a lot, I have a lot of thoughts, an uh, influx of thoughts that come in and out of my head all the time. And um, during the entirety of this book process, I had a lot of things that I just couldn't necessarily write full poems about. So this poem was just snapshots, snapshots of everything that I've seen during the course of me writing this book, which is why for me, it was one of my favorite poems. And it was inspired by also this guy. I wish, I'm sure people have seen him in Cleveland. Um, I can't think of the street, but I do recall this man always playing, it was in Glenville, always playing his guitar in the morning. I never, never really heard him play, but I could see him play. Um, and that I made a point to cover him in, the, in this poem, this body of work as well, very briefly. And his poem is entitled, I Feel You. Black balloons burst in class, books in the dumpster. Belt holding boy together. I am a teacher. My students still alive. I feel you. School on lockdown fire drills. Lack of school supplies. Beat his ass with a Bible. Hungry nights. East Cleveland potholes. Bus stops. Cops watch. Homeless man playing guitar. The hood is all I need, says a drunken man. Mattress on the floor. Rich Ben gave poor boy charter school and uniform. Ain't learned in years. Mom sits on the porch. Daydream chaser. Bills on her lap. I feel you. 
House near the crime scene, forgot to lock the door, homework in the streets, everything blood in the hood, no central air, picnic chair in the living room, the school parking lot, dad singing church hymns, lead in the water, TV dinners, schools fights, I feel you, red in the rain, phone rings, shoes untied, fist fights, children laughing, television, I feel you, unafraid, afraid, pastor preaches, Lord coming, beer bottles rolling under church pews, left the radio on, bullet holes in the basketball, prayer oil on my skin, cuts in the curtains, glass in the car, kids beat the shit out of his school computer, fuck these test scores, school call the cops, said he was a bullet, you made me one. And last and certainly, um, but not least, is um, seems to be everyone's favorite poem, which is entitled Butterfly in the Flesh, which is on page 45. And I have to mention very briefly that this, in a sense, Daniel got me to this point. He asked me, I had my own vision of what a book cover would look like. And Daniel said, how about this? Because I felt like I was, as always, I'm always giving him an end. I'm, I'm information overload for him sometimes. And he, he he listens and he said, just, you know what, just think of a poem that represents the entire collection of your book. I'm going to send it to our illustrator and then they're going to tell them and, I, and tell them to keep the title in mind and then allow them to create a work of art based on that feedback. And that's what happened. And I am full of glee and full of gratitude. And again, it's entitled Butterfly in the Flesh. And I guess I should read show my book cover while I'm reading this poem. Somewhere a butterfly settles near a herd of boys flowering. They draw closer. The butterfly doesn't flutter. They raise their hands to prove they're unarmed. Hundreds of mahogany colored butterflies burst out of them like lightning, joining hands with fireworks. Only God seemed to notice this Blitz. Because in the beginning, he said, let there be light. And a butterfly boy, as black as beginning, appeared in the flesh. Thank you, everyone, for your participation and listening to my story. Thank you uh, so very much. And thank you to uh, our City Club members and audience. You've been listening to uh, poet Cortez Harris. Uh, who has published on 12 Arts Press this wonderful and timely collection of poems titled, We Made It to School Alive. If you would like your own copy of We Made It to School Alive, you can visit www.12arts.org. That's T-W-E-L-V-E-A-R-T-S.org. And you can get your own copy. They are also available at our partner bookstores, Max Bax, Logan Berry Books, and also Visible Voice. We thank you so very much again for joining us in this reading and conversation with truly one of the emerging Black literary voices in Cleveland and in this nation, Cortez Harris. Thank you. And with that, we say peace. Peace. <laughs> much love.